Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, and we're going to be in 1 Peter for this morning. And I think all of us at, at one time or another have been asked a question about our faith. And we've really had no idea how to answer. And uh, instead of trying to come up with a question, the best thing I think to do is to say, you know, I don't know. And be honest with someone and say, but I'll do my best to find out and get an answer for you and get back to you with an answer. I think we've probably all had that experience at one time or another. Well, the the term for answering those questions that we're going to deal with over these next weeks is called apologetics. And you have this on your outline, and if you have an outline, I invite you to take that out and follow along with where we're going. But apologia is a Latin word that means rational defense. And apologetics is being able, you have this also on your outline, to clearly express rational answers to the questions people ask, maybe questions that you have about the Christian faith. Um, Scripture directs us to be prepared to give answers when people ask. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So we have to understand that this area of apologetics is a limited area. Uh, The most brilliant apologetic answer that you could ever give to anyone um, will not win a person to Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. We should always answer to the best of our ability uh, and do so gently and respectfully like the passage says and allow the Holy Spirit to work through us because we're really partnering with him uh, when we respond. So why study apologetics? Well, the idea isn't to argue. Uh, We can win an argument, but lose a person. And that's the last thing we want to do. The goal is to help someone get over the barriers they have when they're sincerely seeking a relationship with God. Uh, The answers are there if hearts and minds are open. So for the next weeks, we're going to look at some of the big questions that people have about Christianity. And uh, and this is also on your outline. As we learn answers to questions, it will also help us strengthen our own faith. Uh, Because like I said earlier, maybe you've had some of these questions. And so it's gonna help us to understand our own faith more as we look at the answers the Bible gives to these questions. Um, This week we're gonna look at the question if God is good, then why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? We see it all around us. Turn on the news and you see it. Uh, You see it in the Ukraine. Um, By the way, I just want to mention that last Sunday we had a couple Ukrainians here with us. They had entered in through Tijuana three days before. Uh, They looked up on Google a Baptist church because they were part of a Baptist church in the Ukraine and they were able to walk here. And we have four 
uh, Russian speakers, three Russian speakers, one Ukrainian speaker uh, in our church. Um, uh, a bunch of them were there. Three of them, I think, were able to, or two of them were able to talk with these gals and could speak a lot more than I could. One of them spoke no English and another one spoke a little English. And in the meantime, we've helped find them a place to live and some jobs and we've done what you would hope a church should do. And so it, it was pretty exciting to see the body of Christ at work here. And um, so that's, that's exciting. So in a nutshell, the problem it defines itself. People think that if God allows evil and suffering, it's because he, and, and, and he can't stop it. It's, maybe he's good, but he's not all powerful. On the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he could stop it but won't, he might be all powerful, but he's not good. So what can we say to someone who asks this question? Um, and we're gonna give what the Bible gives as an answer. So our passage has some great insights that will help us. So at the top of your outline, the next paragraph you have is a paragraph about the section of scripture we're going to look at. So Peter is writing to a people who have suffered greatly and will suffer more in the future. So he's preparing them for that as well. Not every believer is persecuted for their faith, but everyone faces times of discouragement and even suffering. Peter's words remind us of God's grace and sovereignty over all of life. And Peter gives us uh, one thing that we should not do in the face of evil and suffering in the world and then some things we should do in the face of suffering. So let's read our passage together beginning at verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So this is God's word. 
Um, Before we get into the passage, I want to make some comments that I think will help us answer our question. So traditionally, we recognize two types of evil, and you've got these on your outline. Uh, The first is moral evil that's caused by man through rebellion against God or by his cruelty to others. Um, And we look at Ukraine and what's happening there. We look all around us, we see that moral evil. The second one is a natural evil. It's a result of extreme events that are inflicted inflicted on the innocent, like hurricanes and plagues and earthquakes and famines and other diseases and disasters. So first of all, let me just say too that Jesus rejects the idea that all suffering is the result of one's own sin. So I want to read from John chapter 9 from a paraphrase And um, here's what Jesus says. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Uh, Because that was the Jewish belief, to cause this man to be born blind. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. So I think it's important because when something bad happens to somebody, I'm guessing you've heard this said, but I sure have heard this said, I'm a good person, what have I done to deserve this? Well, often the answer, maybe usually the answer is nothing. And yet we find throughout the Bible, and this is on your outline as well, that actions do include consequences. They do indeed have consequences, and those consequences can include suffering. An example of this is Galatians 6-7, which you have on your outline. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So if uh, if somebody sows in their body drugs and alcohol, then they reap the consequences. If they mistreat or emotionally abuse their spouse or their children, and then there's coolness or anger or even hatred towards them, that's a consequence of their sin. Or if they're lazy at work and they get fired because they're lazy, again, they have no one to blame but themselves. So some suffering in life is absolutely because of my own sin. But it's also clear that a lot of suffering in life is is from other people's sin. Uh, Think of a drunk driver who takes an innocent person's life. Or think of a child who suffers sexual abuse. Or millions who suffer hunger or war or famine, and the list goes on. And then there are natural disasters, like we mentioned. Um, Couldn't God prevent them if he wanted to? Well, if we look at the beginning of creation, uh, when God created the world, what did he say over and over again? He created it and he said, it's good. So suffering, and this is also on your outline, suffering and evil were never a part of God's good creation. Uh, They entered the world, suffering and evil entered the world because actions have consequences. And so the Bible, that's what the the answer the Bible gives about where evil comes from. So, uh, and where evil just in our world, natural disasters come from. In Genesis chapter three, because of what you have done, God says to Adam and Eve, the ground will be under a curse. You will have to work hard all of your life to make it produce enough food for you. It will produce weeds and thorns and you will have to eat wild plants. You will have to work hard and sweat 
to make the soil produce anything. The Apostle Paul, then, understanding that, uh, points us to the hope that we have, not only just for ourselves, but also for the natural world. In Romans chapter 8, he says, yet there was the hope that the creation itself would one day be set free from its slavery to decay and would share the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that up to this present time, all of creation groans with pain, like the pain of childbirth. So I think it's fair to say that evil and suffering are not a part of God's original design for the world. So why doesn't God just stop all evil now? Well, think about this. If God stopped all evil now, none of us would be here. Because evil isn't just over in the Ukraine or what we see on television, all the bad things that are going on. Evil is within our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is, is evil and desperately wicked. So if God were to take out all evil, he would take us out. So Genesis 3 tells us that man chose to go his own way rather than follow God's way, and so man suffered the consequences, which is spiritual and physical death. So it was at this point that evil and suffering entered the world. So again, on your outline, God did not create, nor is he responsible for evil and sin. His plan from the beginning had the potential of evil when he gave man the freedom of choice. But the actual origin of evil came as a result of man who directed his will away from God and toward his own selfish desires. So it's man who's responsible for his disobedience to God. So imagine that uh, you uh, buy a very expensive multi-million dollar computer to run your business. And you set that computer up, they, you, somebody comes from the company and sets it up and, and they get it running and they give you a manual for how that computer should run and they, they, they tell you, they give you the instructions and spend time with you uh, on how to, uh, how to work it and the, they give you an operating manual. But as soon as they leave, you throw away the operating manual and you say, I can do this on my own and you start just pushing buttons and, and it, it, it ends up failing. Well the potential for misuse of that equipment was there from the very beginning. But the manufacturer gave very specific instructions on how to use it properly and the consequences of what would happen if you didn't use it properly. And so, remember, God has given us instructions on how to live our lives. We often ignore those instructions. Um, he's given us his word. He's, he's given us a love letter. In fact, we've said before, there are 66 books in the Bible. There are 66 love letters from God to you that he wants you to know how to live your life in his way and be obedient to him. Um, that's how we express our love to God, is by being obedient to his word. And so God's solution flows from his character. And, and God is just and he demands death as a penalty for sin, for rejecting his commands. And yet at the same time, God's love seeks a solution. Um, I, I know some of you have flown to LaGuardia Airport in New York, but maybe you don't know who LaGuardia is. He's a former mayor of New York. 
And uh, what he used to do is every once in a while show up at night court and sit in as a judge because he wanted to keep a pulse on the city. And um, someone in the first service said they remember uh, Mayor LaGuardia reading the comics on Sunday uh, out loud on the radio for them to hear. So, um, but LaGuardia was the mayor. So a man comes in front of him a particular night that he was in court and said uh, that the, the, the penalty was that this man stole some bread. The uh, owner of the market where he stole the bread was not willing to drop charges. He lived in a dangerous area. He wanted to make an example of this man. So LaGuardia asked him why he stole the bread. He said, I needed to feed my family. And so he said, man, as hard as it is for me to do this, I need justice is justice. I need to fine you $10. But then as he said that, Mayor LaGuardia pulled out of his, out his wallet and pulled out $10 and paid for the penalty of this man. And then he said to the people sitting in the court, 75 or 100 people, I'm going to fine everybody here 50 cents for living in a city where a man has to steal a loaf of bread to feed his family. And so they passed a hat and ended up giving this man about $50. So what a great example of the way God deals with us. He demands justice. But when Jesus returns, he will put everything right, as the Bible promises that he will. And Paul reminds us that creation will be renewed and restored as well. So some suffering results in our sin. Some results uh, in the sin of others. And some results because creation itself is warped. But to blame God for the problems that we have in this world, uh, it, it would be like a, a son who borrowed his dad's car and uh, was driving and was speeding and was pulled over by the police and, and uh, some of his friends were in the car and they were drinking alcohol and the policeman sees this so he takes all these guys to jail and the father comes and bails his son out who owns the car. And, and, uh, and, the father, and the son says to the father, you know, this would have never happened if you didn't loan me the car. Well, that's a little bit like us blaming God for the evil that's in this world. So there really are three alternatives, just three alternatives that you have on the outline uh, to the problem of moral and natural evil. So the first one is that evil exists and God does not. Uh, that's what an atheist would say. That's obviously not a biblical answer. Uh, there are some that say that God exists and evil does not. Uh, do you know who says that? Uh, the Christian science says that. That's what they believe. That God exists, but evil is a figment of our imagination. Or what we see in the Bible is the acknowledgement that God exists and evil exists. So let's start looking at 1 Peter. So look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then in verse 7, so that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So on your outline again, the suffering you're going through doesn't have to weaken or destroy your faith. That's what Peter's communicating to these people. And it can and ought to, and this is on your outline, strengthen your faith. That's what it should do. That's what Peter wants it to do to the people he's writing to. 
And what Peter is saying is that abandoning your belief in God doesn't help you understand suffering. Why not? Because if you believe, if you leave behind your belief in God, and then there's no higher law for you to say, well, this is just or unjust. You just have your opinion. And everybody has their opinions. But there are absolutes that the Bible teaches us about. In other words, getting rid of your belief in God to handle evil and suffering doesn't help. So notice in verse seven, it also says, Peter likens suffering to pain as refined by fire. So that's a great metaphor. So there was one time that this literally happened in the Bible, and I can't help but think that Peter had this in mind. I think he had this in mind when he was writing this. I don't know that for sure, but it's in Daniel chapter three. And a Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, set up a great image and demanded that everyone fall down and worship it. But there were three young Jewish men. What were their names? Let's say them together. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story. Um, so they were, they, he threatens to throw them into this fiery furnace. He heats it up. And so much he heats it up that the men who were heating it up die from the heat. And then after they're thrown in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and we're told in Daniel 3, but suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. And who was the fourth? Well, we believe it. It was, it was a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus who was walking around in that fire with those men. God gave us a promise. And here's the promise. And if you take nothing else from this morning, remember this promise from Isaiah 43. It says this, when you go through deep waters, God says, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are honored and I love you. Do not be afraid for I am with you. That's God's word for you this morning from Isaiah the prophet. And the promise here isn't if you go through fiery trials, it's when you go through trials, when you go through deep waters, when you go through rivers of difficulty, and on and on. And so this is the biblical view. While God does not produce suffering, God at times does allow it for a greater good. And we look and say, ah, this Ukraine, the, what's going on there? How can that be for a greater good? How can what's happened through this pandemic be for a greater good? I've had that discussion through this pandemic with a number of people. And I don't know. I, and, and I think that's the best theological answer we can give. I don't know. But I know that God is a good God, that he's a loving God, that he's in control, that this doesn't take God by surprise. I love the response that C.S. Lewis gives in his classic book, The Problem of Pain. Uh, he develops this through a, f a famous visual symbol, which was God's loudspeaker. 
Here's what he said, it's on your outline. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to a final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity some can have for an, an amendment, a correction. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. And you know who has a rebel soul? Every one of us. So two things here are sure that we learn from John chapter 16. Uh, Jesus said, I have said this to you that in me you may have peace. Jesus said this. In the world you have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we know we're gonna have tribulation, but we also know Jesus has overcome the world. And so, again, that's, that's what we know because, because of that are the trials, and this is on your outline, aren't meant to break you, but to refine you. That's what God always wants to use the difficult things we go through in our lives to refine us, ultimately, as a Christian, to make us more like his son, Jesus. God says, when you go through trials, I will so care for you. I will so love you that, that I want you to sense my presence, but even if you don't sense my presence, you will not be consumed. It's when we get to the cross of Jesus that we begin to understand just how far God was willing to go to be with us in our pain and our suffering. So back to 1 Peter. The first thing this passage encourages us to do is to keep looking back to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. Look at verses 10 and 11. I look at the end of verse 11. That's kind of the salient part of this. The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So it's a, the, I'll back up a little bit further. To which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing to what he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So it's only in Christianity of all the religions in the world that says that Jesus, in Jesus, God became vulnerable that he subjected himself to pain and suffering and death for us. Dorothy Sayers, the, the great uh, British writer, said, I don't know why there's suffering, but I don't know why God allows suffering, but all I know is that he at least took his own medicine. If you've lost a loved one, you can look at the cross and see the father losing his son. What Jesus suffered on the cross was not just physical. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It was way more than that as he bore all of what we deserve in his body. And maybe the cross can't tell us why God allows suffering and why suffering continues, but it definitely tells us what it can't be. And what it can't be is because God doesn't love us or doesn't care. 
After all, he came, and I I, I love the way uh, Tim Keller put this, he plunged himself into the fiery furnace for our sufferings and infinitely beyond that as he bore our sins. God hated suffering so much that he was willing to come and be immersed into our sufferings and go through it himself so that one day he could end evil without ending us because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives through Jesus who died for us. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells the life of every believer. And then this is number two on your outline, and that is to keep anticipating the living hope of the resurrection. Starting at verse three, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, and who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What Peter is saying is that to make it through suffering, we need to focus on the hope of Christ's return. I have a friend who's from Egypt and who lost, became a Christian and lost his job with the railway in, uh, in Egypt because they found out he was a Christian. And I want to tell you that uh, him focusing on, the, on the, 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 the hope of the resurrection, the hope of Christ's return, gave him the power to go through the furnace of the persecution that he went through. And the proof of this, is, is that this is coming, is the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what we talked about last week. That's a foretaste. This is the new heavens and the new earth that Peter's pointing us to. And Paul, the apostle, does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes this, Behold, the trumpet shall sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written shall come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. And so the new heavens and the new earth that are coming are described as unspoiled and imperishable. And Paul goes even so far as to say that that the suffering and death has been swallowed up by victory. So to swallow something up is to do away with it completely. Victory means to defeat an enemy. In other words, death had victory. Death was the victor before Christ rose from the dead. But with Christ's resurrection, it swallowed up death forever. And so we, like we looked at last week, Jesus' resurrection happened. And that means our resurrection will happen. Now think about this, because this is the focus of heaven. This means that everything that's horrible in our past will be in heaven as if it never happened. This is the final and ultimate defeat of death and suffering. So one commentator writes this, and I love this quote, it's on your outline. Death is not merely destroyed so that it cannot do further harm while all of the harm which it has wrought on God's children remains. The tornado is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked while those that were wrecked still lie in ruin. 
death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. Listen to that. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. That's what the Bible teaches. This means that when we're in heaven for all eternity, everything sad in the lives of every believer will become untrue. How do we know that? Because that's what God promises. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 21, there will be no more death, no more grief, no more crying, no more pain, because the old things have disappeared. And so to overcome the suffering that we all go through, we look backward to the cross, we look forward to the hope of what's to come, and then finally, this is the last one, we keep looking into the gospel. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. And the Greek word for long, that the angels long, is the word lust. So in other words, the angels obsessively and passionately look into the gospel. Don't think of the gospel as elementary or the minimum requirements to enter heaven and then we go on to more advanced stuff. Do not tell the angels that. Angels have been around basically forever and they never get tired of looking at the gospel. This is what they're looking into all the time. So how do we look into the gospel? We look at Jesus. And how did Jesus make it through what he went through? It says in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And the only way to get through the furnace that Jesus got through was because he focused on, as it says in Hebrews 12, the joy that was set before him. He had a living hope. He accomplished what the Father sent him to do, to die for your salvation and for mine. What was his hope? Isaiah 53 says, he will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. That's what God sent Jesus to do. That's the gospel to bear our sin. And think about this, we are his living hope. We are the ones that were justified. We are the ones whose iniquities were born. The only thing that Jesus didn't have in heaven that he had to come to earth to get was you. Your salvation. And we are his living hope. And what, we are what fills him with joy. It was you that sent Jesus into the furnace. Jesus went into the furnace for you. And this is the last thing on your outline. If we think about his love for us, that's what will make him our living hope to focus on how much he loves us and that he will give us the strength to go through whatever furnace you're dealing with personally. And so I want to end with verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. We don't see him physically here. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And if you learn to look at the gospel and keep looking at it the way that angels do and keep seeing the things he has done for you, like it says in verse eight, you won't see him. We're not gonna see him physically right now, but you'll love him and you will be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Meditate on those words. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us all we need so that we can face the mystery of evil and suffering. We don't know why there's so much suffering and we don't understand why there are so many individual tragedies that go on in this world. But when we look back at the cross and look to our eternal hope and keep looking at the gospel and all that your son did for us and keep remembering that we will get to spend all of eternity in your presence we realize we have everything we need so that evil and suffering doesn't consume us, but will turn us into gold. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is from the Apostle Paul in Romans 15. I pray that God, the source of our hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.